Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders on the issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including the latest car sales figures for Australia. We have an interview with Alan Zervis on Volkswagen's large SUV, the Touareg. And last week, we heard from Chris about preparing a classic Jag for his daughter's wedding. This week, we hear from the daughter about what it's like growing up with a father who had a passion for old Jaguars. And Brian Smith and I discussed the unusual transport impacts of COVID-19. Now, you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes, or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. But let's get the program going. First, the news. Vehicle sales figures from VFAX show that the market has bounced back a little since the catastrophic months of March, April and May. Sales are still down 6.4% for June, but this is in line with a long-term sales decline for the last 27 months. Some of the results are likely to be a catch-up from the previous few months when the impact of COVID-19 decimated car sales. Overall, for the first half of the year, sales are down 20% on last year. Four-wheel drive utes, light commercial vans, heavy trucks and prestige cars such as Audi, Lexus and BMW had good results for the month. The super luxury vehicles such as Ferrari and Lamborghini did not do well. Low-priced cars from China such as Haval and MG and motorbikes in general have done especially well in percentage terms. Nissan's all-electric sedan, the LEAF, has bi-directional charging, which is approved in European markets as a power pack to plug back into the network or applications such as powering your house. The technology has yet to be approved in Australia, but the ACT government has initiated a trial. The trial will see 51 Nissan LEAFs as part of the ACT government fleet provide frequency control and ciliary services to the national electricity market. This refers to the energy used to keep a power grid operating at its optimum levels at times of fluctuating demand. It's the injection or reduction of power that prevents instability in the grid that can lead to blackouts. This is similar to the South Australian government using Tesla batteries, but in the ACT, it is just a trial to prove that the bi-directional concept works. Elon Musk has said that achieving success with hydrogen fuel cell technology for powering vehicles is simply not possible. In a more high-spirited mood, he has called it mind-bogglingly stupid. But many businesses disagree. Hyundai has started shipping its Exeunt to Switzerland. It's the world's first mass-produced fuel cell heavy-duty truck. Hyundai plans to roll out a total of 1,600 Exeunts by 2025. The driving range between refuelling is rated at about 400 kilometres. Refuelling takes approximately 8 to 20 minutes. The Swiss road tax on commercial vehicles does not apply for zero-emission trucks. 
Hyundai is developing a long-distance semi-trailer truck capable of travelling 1,000 kilometres on a single tank. As a fuel cell is used to produce power for a vehicle's electric motors, a major benefit could be a reduction in noise associated with diesel vehicles. Jaguar has developed a scheme in the UK where you don't buy a car and be stuck with that model, but rather you pay a subscription and then swap to different models that suit your desire for a range of experiences. The service is called Pivotal, and you can swap cars every six months to what could be a four-wheel drive, a large sedan, or an electric vehicle. This will also allow you to experience the latest technology in their new models. A monthly payment covers the rental cost, insurance, tax, servicing and repairs, leaving just fuel to be paid for, and there are a range of membership options. The Land Rover Discovery and the Range Rover Sport are also included, but the thrill of trying something new will be added at a later stage with the new Land Rover Defender and two plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. The quest for high-powered macho SUVs continues with Volkswagen announcing that they will launch in October a 4-litre V8 twin-turbo diesel version of their large SUV, the Touareg. This is the same engine that is shared by other brands within the Volkswagen Group, including the Bentley Bentayga. The V8 Touareg is capable of a 0-100 to km an hour time of 4.9 seconds. That's just 0.1 of a second behind the Australian specification Golf R performance hatchback and 0.1 ahead of the Golf R wagon. There is a massive 310 kilowatts and a huge 900 newton metres of torque which reaches its peak at just 1,250 revs per minute. The Touareg V8R line comes with an 8-speed automatic gearbox and has a rated fuel consumption of 7.5 litres per 100 kilometres. It costs $136,500 plus on-roads, but features include night vision, 21-inch alloy wheels and a sound and comfort package. And that has been the news. Well, the Volkswagen Touareg, a large SUV, they first started making them way back in 2002. We're up to the third generation that came out in 2018. When we first drove this, Alan Zervis and I were amazed at how big it felt, how sitting behind the wheel gave you the impression of sitting behind a CEO's desk in a large office. It spanned out before you. I've just driven the latest one with an interesting option pack, and it didn't feel quite as wide, but there were a couple of reasons for that. It's still the same dimensions, of course. But to talk about that, why not get Alan back on the line and discuss how things have changed. Alan, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, David. I suppose nothing changes like change. <laughs> Alan, I think one of the things that makes the width not as dominant as you remember, is that there's now a huge infotainment screen and that means it cuts back on the horizontal slats of the air conditioner, which I think added to the appearance, the perception of the width. How big is that screen now that we've got this InnoVision package? Yes, David, it's 15 inches for that screen. And then, of course, the instruments in front of the driver is 12.3. The other reason it might not look as quite as big is that I might have got wider. <laughs> I think we've both gotten wider. 
all at the moment we've got is the choice of the three-liter V6 diesel, which has got a reasonable amount of power. It's 190 kilowatts, David, and 600 newton meters. 600 newton meters is a lot of low-down grunt. It is. Alan, do you like the look of it? David, I think it looks stunning, and and I I'm going to go out on a limb and say I prefer the look to its Audi counterpart. I think it's crisp and clean with everything in the right place. The front lights look stunning. The rear lights look stunning. And the interior, I think, is absolutely delicious. It's not trying too hard. There's not too many, well, there's hardly any sort of creases and angles that you might expect. And certainly the Lamborghini Urus would be an example of that. But equally, it doesn't then go into that blancmange sort of thing that I think the Audi Q7 does. Well, I think the problem with the Lamborghini, first of all, is the name. I think it's hideous looking. But that name, I mean, you could go very wrong with that after a couple of brandies. Very, very wrong. And the other thing, too, that uh, that I notice with this, with the cruise control on, not that you should anyway, but it won't let you pass on the inside, even if there's no one in front of you. I experienced that. There was a bus in the middle lane because there was, a couple of kilometres ahead, a left lane exit, so the bus wanted to stay there. No, and the only way to pass is to put your foot all the way to the floor. To override the cruise control. This option pack, the InnoVision one, it's not cheap. $8,000. That's a lot of money. And it has... Windshield projected head-up display, which I think is nice. Additional ambient interior lighting, 30 selectable colours. Does that appeal to you, Alan? It does. Yeah, I don't mind a bit of disco. I'm, I'm sort of from that era. So, yeah, change, change it all the time. Not, not a problem. I think the, the starting price is now for the Volkswagen Touareg all-wheel drive, three-litre diesel engine. You can get the base model at a little under 81,000 plus on-roads and the premium at about nearly 87,000 plus on-roads. It's not the cheapest around by any means, but mind you, a a Toyota, top-of-the-range Toyota Prado is 89,000. But of course, some of the other large four-wheel drives are much cheaper. But Volkswagen also makes Audi, of course. They make Audi, that the, the Volkswagen group throw a dart at a board and you'll pretty much hit a Volkswagen brand. There's Audi and uh, they're mixed up with Porsche and uh, Lamborghini, obviously, as well. Bentley. Ducati. That means, of course, that, say, the, well, it's perhaps the most immediate competitor within the Volkswagen group is the Audi, and that starts at $101,000, and for the three-litre goes up to about one hundred and twenty. but you can get a Super V8 SQ7 for 161500 So if you want the brand name, it, it's there, but it is going to cost you. Well, I think the interesting thing is, and I said this in my review, would I really pay the price of quite a decent family car just to get an Audi badge over a Volkswagen badge? I didn't mention the Bentley, but that only starts at the 4-litre V8. But then again, that is three hundred and thirty-four thousand seven hundred dollars but uh, that will be the v8 that we will get in the last quarter of 2020 also the bentley is as ugly as a bag full of busted oranges it's not pretty (laughs) not pretty jeez (laughs) it's like the car was designed by a committee who never met and had no guidelines and knew nothing about motoring (laughs) 
or about cars or about design or about pencils. So the Volkswagen Touareg, not the cheapest on the market, but still good quality, excellent quality that you would have to go to much more expensive brands to get very, that would have some similar components to it. Traffic jam assist, emergency assist, front and rear, cross traffic assist, easy opening and closing tailgates. It's in summary, Alan, how would you pick the Volkswagen Touareg? I loved it. And in fact, I said when I got back from my Queensland trip, if I had the money and I wanted a really big SUV, I'd actually buy that with my own money, but I'd have to have those extras. I'd have to have the fancy screen and so forth. I'd be happy to give the sunroof up. You're listening to Overdrive. Last week, we heard our Melbourne correspondent, Chris, talk about how he had to prepare his wonderful old Mark I Jaguar for his daughter's wedding. Chris has a long-term passion with Jaguars, and I wondered how that might affect the children. And so I asked Jess about getting the car for the wedding and growing up with an enthusiast. G'day, Jess. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, David? I'm very well, thank you. Now, you remember in your youth, do you remember Chris's interest, passion, phobia, disease, whatever you'd like to call it, his love for Jaguars? (laughs) Yes, very much so. I think he's had Jags since I was really little. Did you ever get taken to school in a Jaguar? On several occasions, yes. Did that feel good? Um, Yeah. I mean, as a teenager, slightly embarrassing, but I appreciate it now. Did your uh, friends uh, give you a bit of a hard time? Um, No, I'm pretty sure I made him drop me around the corner or something like that. (laughs) Is that simply because it was old? Um, Probably, or it just was really loud. (laughs) You wanted to get married. You had a choice of three Jaguars. You chose the white one. What was your thinking there? Well, I didn't really put too much thought behind it. I'm not one for really, I don't know, maybe it was the most aesthetically pleasing and the most wedding-themed, I guess. It was white and it had four doors. I guess that helped. That was pretty much my thinking, yes. And Charlie was behind you in that regard? Yeah, yeah, I think he was. He, He liked the idea of having the Jaguar for the wedding? Yeah, he did. He did like the idea. Did your friends comment on it? Um, yeah, they thought it was really pretty. Yeah, it was just a nice, I guess, old-fashioned thing, so something old, which is good. It has sort of an elegance, doesn't it? That inside of the timber lining, it ha- it has that sense of tradition and style to it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. You didn't think to put uh, ribbons on it or anything? You thought just the Jagger alone would be good? I think I think Dad put white ribbons on the front. I think in the photos there was no ribbons. Yeah, you don't really need to when it's a white, nice old car. Kind of thick for itself. Was it a bit loud too? It was very loud and Dad took us around the block twice and I was horrified it was going to stop. Something but it didn't. <laughs> You don't think you'll buy a Jaguar? I don't think personally, just because I don't know anything about them. Like, I appreciate what they look like, but I think they're very high maintenance, especially old Jags. You've learnt that from your father? Yes. (laughs) Has he ever tried to uh, encourage you to get a Jaguar? Um, I don't know about encourage. He's always been very, very passionate about 
loaning me cars and teaching me to drive in them. But yeah, I don't, I think he knows me well enough to know that I couldn't maintain one. So you learnt to drive in a Jaguar? Sometimes, yeah. I think in, he has like a Daimler. I went for a few lessons in that. Is that a Jag? A Daimler? They have a common heritage. Ah, oh, okay. Well, I did get I did get to drive in like I don't know what type of car this was. Um, it was white as well, but it had two seats and a very long front. You don't mean an E-type? Ah, oh, yeah, the E-type. I drove in that. I think maybe once or twice. But is that manual? Well, it can be. Yes. Do you realise that your father shows no greater love for you than letting you drive his E-Type Jaguar? I remember him picking me up for a date in the E-Type and my, awkwardly in like year nine or something and my date being like really mildly horrified. <laughs> horrified in what way? Oh, in like, a, in like a wow, I've never been in this type of car kind of way. Not horrified, I should say maybe... Um, confused or <laughs> perplexed. Certainly shocked. Would that be the word? Shocked. There we go. Shocked, not horrified. <laughs> Maybe I was horrified. Did the two of you have to get into the car or did he just deliver you there? No, no, we had to get into the car and we were like squished in the back. I remember feeling really nervous. <laughs> that could have been romantic. Oh, it, would, it could have been with the right guy. <laughs> I presume that wasn't Charlie. No, it wasn't Charlie. It was pre-Charlie, year nine. I think that was our last date together. Did the car force that or did you use the car as a reason? Maybe I used the car as a reason. I think deep down I was like thinking, oh, this is pretty cool. I'll show him the, you know, how cool my dad is with his car or something like that. But I think it worked. it didn't work out for other reasons. <laughs> Did you try and use the Jaguars to impress your friends? Um, I don't think, uh, other than that time, I don't think I did. As I said before, being a teenager, slightly embarrassed. <laughs> I don't think I fully understood, like, the cult behind the Jags or the coolness behind the Jags. I was just wanting, you know, the, the typical, what does everyone else have? Like the Range Rover, like, why can't we have one of those? Or why can't we have the regular mum car. Because before the Jags, I think we had an orange Volvo, which, like, backfired. He's had a range of cars, hasn't he? Yeah, I had to drive around in a really heavy Mercedes at one point. Like, I drove that car. It was like a beast. It was so big. I was in my mid-20s. <laughs> he, he gave me all these cars. <laughs> Has your taste evolved would you be more comfortable in an E-Type now? Yeah, I think I definitely would be, yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit of an acquired taste, is it? It definitely is, like a fine wine. You appreciate it with age. <laughs> but there's still no guarantee it won't backfire? Um, no guarantee, for sure, because I'm never quite sure if he's finished tinkering with it. There's been many times when it's broken down. For sure. His shed, and that has proved to be beneficial if one of your cars needs a service or has something broken. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And he's always found cars for me or given me a good deal. <laughs> he's found cars for me, which is good. 
Oh, so he might have owned a car and then passed it on to you? Oh, yeah, or just has a mate that has an old car that, you know, that he can pass on to me, which is good. And he can help keep it going. Oh, for a time, yes. But these cars always have a limited time frame, limited life. It's good. It gets you through. It gets you through from A to B. Definitely in my 20s, I went through about five different cars that Dad all acquired for me. The last of which was a Toyota Corolla from like the 1980s. It was white, a hatchback, and I was driving to school and it broke down in the middle of the road. And some lovely man helped me wheel it round the side, a side street, and I left it there for two weeks. <laughs> and then I think Dad helped me tow it home or something, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> that was the last car. Were you ever tempted then to marry a mechanic so that you could keep your cars going? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Charlie um, is a bike mechanic, but not a car mechanic, so. Uh, he doesn't really know too much about cars. I don't know if there's almost something, not Freudian, but uh, the fact that uh, your experience with cars has meant that you've ended up someone who is a professional with bikes. Yes, I know. <laughs> Interesting. He's a lovely guy. I'm not trying to say anything from that. No, 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 not at all. Charlie's quite obsessive with bikes, just like Dad is obsessive with cars. All right, Jesse, that's lovely. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. And that was Jesse, the daughter of our colleague Chris, who last week regaled us with how he had to fix up his Mark I Jaguar for her wedding. You're listening to Overdrive. And we get to the uh, latter part of the program, and on the line is our great friend, Brian Smith. Okay, Brian? G'day, David. Tell me about what the some of the impacts of COVID-19 have been. I want to talk to you about a particular one that's a, it's a highly unusual and slightly dark impact. One of the things that's resulted from the reduction in people moving about, and that's been a reduction in traffic, has been a reduction in fatal crashes. And you might think that's a good thing. You know, we're saving lives. But something like one third of organ donations for people who have who require a, a, an organ transplant are sourced in the US at least through crashes in motor vehicle crashes and fatal injuries associated with them. So one of the strange and kind of negative outcomes of the COVID shutdown has been the reduction in crashes means people on the waiting list for a transplant organ are suffering because not enough people are dying now. What an amazing idea that the reduction is quite substantial, right? So the number of people, organ donors, these are, who died in crashes between early March and early April were down across the US of around 23%. And this really does make a difference to the supply of organs. Are you an organ donor, David? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they want mine, Brian. <laughs> they don't want mine either, too. <laughs> But look, um, what a shocking sort of unexpected outcome. This is maybe one of those those things where people may need to, to sort of take one for the team or something. What a terrible idea that that because more people are living, more other people may die. If the number of people, uh, fatalities was down 20 or so percent in America, they kill 30,000 a year. So 20%, 6,000. Something like that. Well... Well, transplants 
surgeries across that same period dropped 52%. So there are other sources and uh, for um, transplanted organs, and and of course they include people who die of strokes and heart attacks and things like that. But one of the great advantages, if you put it that way, of uh, traffic crashes is that they can deliver younger organs and um, organs that are are not necessarily affected by somebody's disease or or other condition. You know, a healthy person killed suddenly in a car crash, um, pretty attractive donor, I guess. Do you remember years ago you uh, had a contact and we spoke to that guy whose child died? He was about 10 and uh, he met three or four people who lived because... Died, yes. Yeah, it was tragic. You know, a nine-year-old boy who went in for an operation and basically had a terrible mistake occur during the operation. But the father was able to, uh, I guess, deal with it because his son's death gave life to a whole bunch of other people, which is a, a kind of a beautiful element of it. But it's a it's a it's quite a challenging story, isn't it, David? It's one of those, what, what is it, a mind exercise, thought exercises. Would you do this in order to save your parents? It's like a trolley problem. The trolley is a classic thought pro- uh, exercise. Challenge of, uh, you know, you, you can you can change the direction of the trolley from one track to another. On You know, on one track it might hit and kill five people and on another one person, but you have no way of knowing yeah. the relative value of any of those lives. Actually, the trolley problem, which is, you know, like a rail problem, is a classic because most people can't then divorce themselves from the details of train. If you were to try a thought exercise of do you shunt a train one way to kill so many or another way to kill others, you could never get the value out of that when talking to a railway enthusiast because they'd always ask, well, what sort of points would you have? <laughs> They take the detail. There's what there's a classic one on if you w- woke up and found you were next to a world's greatest violinist, but he could only live if you were linked to him for nine months, would you do it? And, of course, the reality of that is it's a thought exercise on abortion. But, of course, you can't do that with doctors because they keep saying, well, there's no technology to do that. That does, doesn't make sense. That's not the point. The point is that you're doing an exercise to consider the broader ramifications and the difficulties in making such a decision. Yes, and, of course, these are the, the complexities of human life, I suppose, that uh, we're completely ill-equipped to consider these things. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. And that was Brian Smith, and we are talking here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Jess Kate, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listener.